You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply. Hi, everyone. This is Scott. If you want to learn about the world's oldest civilizations, find out how they were rediscovered. Follow the story of Mark Antony and Cleopatra's descendants over ten generations, or take a deep dive into the Iron Age or the Hellenistic Era, then check out the Ancient World Podcast. Available on all podcasting platforms, or go to ancientworldpodcast.com. That's the Ancient World Podcast. Welcome to Pax Britannica. Season 2, Episode 65. A Coalition of Chaos. Welcome back to Pax Britannica. I'm your host, Samuel Hume. Before we begin, thank you to my House of Lords, which has been joined by Michael Baron Such. Like all other patrons, he can now listen to this episode and every other episode ad-free. Go to patreon.com slash Pax Britannica to find out more. When we last left off, the Scottish commissioners had finally come to an agreement with the King. The engagement. Quite frankly, the English were lunatics. The New Model Army and the independent junta, which dominated Parliament, were risking the souls of all the King's subjects with their naive belief in religious toleration. That just would not do. The compromise of all compromises. It wasn't a good deal, but for the moderate Scots, a bad deal was better than no deal. Presbyterianism, in the form agreed by the Westminster Assembly of Divines, would be continued for three years, with a permanent religious settlement to be agreed afterwards. There would be much more cross-border influence in the governments of both England and Scotland, and, vital for the King's agreement, neither he nor any of his subjects would be made to swear to the Covenant. This was signed and buried in the grounds of Charles's gilded cage, and as we saw, leading figures in all three kingdoms began to prepare for war. The terms of the engagement would be, well, controversial would be understating it. The Kirk party, and many non-Argyle supporters as well, were horrified by the terms. Allowing the king to avoid taking the covenant, and worse, not imposing it on the rest of his subjects, left the door open for him to go back on his word. And knowing Charles as they did, he was probably going to try and go back on his word. And a trial period for Presbyterianism. Really, a trial period for the eternal souls of the three kingdoms. Alexander Henderson, who had died in 1646, must have been spinning in his grave. Henderson was one of the authors of the National Covenant and the Solemn League and Covenant, and a central figure in the Scottish Revolution. His death was widely reported to have been due to a combination of kidney stones and disappointment over the course of events. 
one of his last recorded sayings over dinner was, quote, There was never a schoolboy more desirous to have the play than I am to have leave of this world, end quote. Cheery bloke, I'm sure it cheered up dinner. He was buried in Greyfriars Kirkyard, where the citizens of Edinburgh had gathered to sign his beloved National Covenant eight years previously. So this is all to say that the Kirk denounced the engagement, and its ministers preached against it from the pulpit. Later, when Hamilton and the engagers attempt to recruit an army, they'll find it very difficult in the regions of strong Covenanter sentiment, such as Ayrshire. Despite forbidding young men from leaving the kingdom to escape the draft, Hundreds escaped to Ulster or Ayrshire. More on that shortly. But even supporters of the king, like the exiled Marquis of Montrose, rejected the benefits of the engagement. He didn't trust the engagers, believing that they were capable of betraying the Stuarts if need be, and he refused, repeatedly, to be party to any strategy involving them. But for their part, most of the engagers didn't want anything to do with Montrose either, who had caused Scotland so much death and destruction. Historians have been divided over what the engagement represented. Alan McInnes calls it a reactionary effort to reassert aristocratic dominance over Scotland and, simultaneously, promote a conservative resurgence in all three kingdoms. But Laura Stewart and Janie Nugent disagree, saying that it's far more complicated than that. The engagers had a plan. They were proactive. And this was appealing to those who were tired of the Kirk Party's essentially wait-and-see approach, especially as all they were seeing was rampant heresy and political radicalism spreading through their southern neighbour. When we last saw Ireland, the Catholic Confederacy had suffered serious defeats at the hands of the parliamentarian commanders, Colonel Michael Jones, Governor of Dublin, and Lord Inchiquin, the Lord President of the province of Munster. At the Battle of Dungan's Hill, Jones destroyed the Confederate Army of Leinster, commanded by General Thomas Preston, killing between two and a half and five thousand Confederate soldiers in the battle itself, and in the exceptionally brutal massacre which followed. Further south, Inchiquin defeated Lord Taft's Munster army at the Battle of Knocknanus, killing around three thousand men. He'd also brutally sacked the town and cathedral of Cashel two months earlier. These defeats sent the Confederacy reeling, and the Kilkenny Assembly wanted someone to blame. Many of them landed on the papal nuncio, Archbishop Rinaccini. Rinaccini had, after all, forced the Confederacy to repudiate an earlier treaty with the king, through the threat of excommunication and a literal military coup. The Assembly dissolved itself on Christmas Eve 1647, leaving the Supreme Executive Council divided between supporters of Rinaccini's hardline position and the moderate peace faction. In England, the independent-dominated parliament and the New Model Army prepared for war, and began setting their house in order. Because good grief, their house was a mess. There was growing resentment against parliament, against the army, against the taxes raised by the former to pay for the latter. In print, royalist and generally anti-Puritan, anti-army pamphlets were everywhere, condemning their policies and the army generally and calling for an agreement with the king, or at least the restoration of the king to London, so that the instability of the civil war could finally be put to bed. Hundreds of reformados, former army officers drummed out of Parliament's various armies when it new-modelled its army, and former royalist officers alike flooded north. The restrictive religious policies of Parliament 
particularly the banning of celebrations like Christmas, along with festivities and games like the Maypole, as well as banning stage plays, demolishing theatres, and having actors publicly whipped, were turning more and more people against the government. These events would become flashpoints for public and popular resentment. Historians have noted that these events, from small private observances in houses and churches to public gatherings in village and town squares, can show us a lot. These were not just protests from local people, resentful of an overbearing central government, the kind you can find everywhere at any time period, really. They certainly were that, and they were often explicitly condemning or rejecting what they saw as unjust or tyrannical policies. But they were also often explicit in their support for the king, for his restoration, and for the restoration of the Church of England as they once knew it. They hearkened back to a time before the Civil War, before the government collapse and the ancient liberties of England came under threat. A peaceful, harmonious pre-war world which, through the lens of hindsight and set against the world they now had, had been shorn of its flaws by the passage of time. Of course, this wasn't the case everywhere, and parliamentarian sentiment remained strong in key regions such as Warwickshire, Suffolk, Somerset and Lancashire. These sentiments were also gaining a radical flavour, underpinned by newly developing political ideas. Don't think that the levellers and those like them have gone away just because the grandees restored their authority over the army. Political radicalism remained widespread and increasingly influential, flourishing not just because of the high political crisis which was now unfolding, but because of ordinary and more important problems, like, I don't know, getting enough food on the table to feed your family. A famous leveller petition called itself the Warning Tears of the Oppressed. Its warning was that, quote, Necessity dissolves all laws and government, and hunger will break through stone walls. None of this was helped by the weather of 1648. The wet and terrible summer would mean a very poor harvest, the third one in a row. Many sought to blame someone for this, and those who didn't blame Parliament, or the army, or everyone in charge, and there were many of those, blamed the king for not coming to terms and for starting another war. They were getting increasingly frustrated by the intransigence of the king, and the question was being asked, quietly at first, but increasing in volume, do we really need the king? Do we need this king? Do we need any king? Before I continue, there's a few things to keep in mind. Firstly, as we cover the events of 1648 over the following episodes, we're going to be jumping from kingdom to kingdom. My timeline notes for this year are a mess of red, blue and green highlights. Events are happening very quickly, all at the same time. And unlike with the First Civil War, I'm going to try and cover everything as it happens, rather than compartmentalising it by kingdom. I think to do otherwise would hide the chaotic nature of these events and how important and intertwined these actions and the people making them are to one another. So, if you find yourself getting confused about where we currently are, you aren't alone. I was too, putting these scripts together. Secondly, let's define our terms. When I refer to royalists in these episodes, I'm talking about a coalition made up of many different groups and people who often have very little in common except a shared opposition to the independent junto in the English Parliament and to the new model army. They might have different goals, and these goals are often mutually exclusive. 
So this coalition now includes the Scottish engagers, many of whom also consider themselves Covenanters, moderate English parliamentarians and English political Presbyterians who had fought against the king in the First Civil War, unashamed royalists from the First Civil War, Irish Protestants who opposed the New Model Army, Irish Catholics who were willing to compromise with the king and Ormond, and a great number of ordinary people who will throw their lot in with the enemies of the New Model Army for whatever reason matters to them. Some believe that only by things going back to normal will their lives improve. Others are appalled at the revolutionary behaviour and rhetoric of the New Model Army, independence and political radicals. When I refer to Parliament or Parliamentarian, I'll mostly be speaking of the independent junta which currently dominates events, or the elements of the New Model Army which remain firmly under the command of the grandees like Fairfax, Cromwell and Henry Ireton. Parliament is not as unified as the army, nor is it firmly unified with the army, but I'll make clear when those conditions are important. There has been a lot of resentment brewing in the Three Kingdoms, and England especially, and even as the broad church of royalism has become even broader, attitudes are hardening, especially in the new model army. There may have been some civility in the First English Civil War, with letters from old friends forced by ideals to fight one another. There was nothing civil about the Second Civil War. You've worked hard for what you have. Your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply. Let me recommend another history podcast on the Airwave Network. The Redacted History Podcast is a show that seeks to tell the stories that have been hidden all our lives. Hosted by historian Dr. Andre White... Redacted History covers not only relatively unknown pieces of history, but also gives new perspectives on much more famous events. For example, Martin Luther King Jr. was under intense surveillance by the FBI for more than a decade before he was assassinated. Everything from tales to wiretaps to threatening phone calls and attempted blackmail. Dr. White explains these events with an engaging narrative, and he places an emphasis on unsung heroes and marginalised people throughout history. There is so much history that has been obscured and hidden from us. One could say that a lot of this history has been... redacted. Listen to Redacted History every Thursday, everywhere you find good podcasts. For Parliament and the Army, the Brewing War was obviously a priority. The House of Commons appointed Sir Thomas Rainsborough, as the new Admiral of the Fleet which guarded the Solent, the stretch of water between mainland England and the Isle of Wight. The King could not be allowed to escape again, or be rescued by foreign powers or domestic rebels. Rainsborough was reliable, and the Commons decided he was their man. But the House of Lords refused the appointment. They didn't pass the ordinance. So another precedent was laid down. The House of Commons simply ignored the will of the upper house. Rainsborough was simply told to take command on the authority of the commons, whatever the objections of the lords. The army also tried one more time to bring the king to the negotiating table, breaking the vote of no addresses which they'd only just enforced 
The grandees secretly tried to convince the king to accept the heads of proposals. If they could split the king from the engagers, the brewing war would probably not be avoided, things were in motion which could not be stopped, but it would at least take the wind out of many sails. Of course, this attempt went nowhere. In Scotland, the Committee of Estates, which governed while Parliament was absent, accepted the engagement in principle, but well aware of how controversial the agreement was, they delayed acting on it until Parliament could assemble and ratify it. Every ounce of political legitimacy would be needed to see this win over the Scottish people. When that Parliament met on the 2nd of March, many royalist nobles and gentry, who had either avoided previous Argyle-dominated parliaments, or at least stayed fairly quiet during them, were in attendance, and loudly in support of the engagement. Parliament ratified the engagement by a substantial majority. The Kirk faction and Argyle did not care for being in the minority for once. I've read some historians describe Argyle as someone calmly sitting to one side, watching this all go down, knowing that it will end badly, not interfering directly, but allowing his rival Hamilton to mess up, and quietly preparing to deal with the fallout. I'm not so sure Argyle came to that conclusion so quickly, if ever, and there is evidence that his faction, unable to dominate Parliament, attempted to win over the most important piece in this drama, the army. An anti-engagement petition was drafted and spread throughout the army, but it went nowhere. Too many leading officers refused to sign it, even if they disagreed with the engagement in principle. Parliament had ratified it, and that was enough. To paraphrase esteemed political correspondent Peter O'Hanrahanrahan, they didn't like the deal, but they had to go along with it. Both Argyle and the Kirk contested the recruitment of the Engager army. Even if they couldn't stop this bus, they would slow it down as best they could. Across the border, in February 1648, Parliament agreed to the Great Disbandment. This was done in the face of the increasing resentment from taxpayers and those forced to house the standing army. 20,000 soldiers, almost half its military capacity, were sent home, often without pay. Now, this is one of the moments where the army and parliament are not in agreement, and you might think that the brink of another civil war and an almost certain foreign invasion was a bad time to get rid of half your army, but parliament was seriously concerned about public opinion on this issue. And besides, it still left Fairfax in command of a substantial force of hardened and motivated veterans. The turn in public opinion can be seen dramatically in Essex. Essex had, for a long time, been a stronghold of parliamentarianism, and so it was quite a surprise for Parliament to receive a delegation of 2,000 men carrying a petition calling for peace, drafted by the Chelmsford Grand Jury. Parliament ignored the petition. Then, on the 27th of March, the anniversary of Charles's coronation, semi-spontaneous celebrations sprung up all over London and all over the country. Bonfires were everywhere in London as people celebrated and cheered the king's name, toasted to his health, and generally partied. Things got a bit less light-hearted as the night went on. Carriages were stopped, and their passengers, whoever they might have been, were surrounded by the crowds and made to drink to the king's health, political allegiance be damned. The same day, someone brought out an effigy of Colonel Hammond, the king's unwilling jailer. Remember, he had tried to stay out of politics, until politics literally turned up on his doorstep. 
Well, now his effigy was being dragged through London's streets before being executed in the traditional manner of traitors. The crowds hanged the effigy, pulled out its stuffing, and then chopped it into four pieces. Hammond's reluctance to get involved in politics looks quite sensible in hindsight. Ironically, it was in Wales that the first sparks of the Second English Civil War would be seen. Colonel Poyer was the commander of Pembroke Castle, and he had been a loyal officer during the First Civil War. Like many gentlemen officers, he had paid for many of his men's supplies and equipment from his own pocket, and after the war, he appealed to Parliament to reimburse him. Parliament, strapped for cash, said no. Worse news came in February, when his forces were included in the Great Disbandment. Would his men be paid the wages they were owed before they disbanded? Parliament, still strapped for cash, again said no. When a new governor arrived, one Colonel Fleming, and Poyer was ordered to transfer command of Pembroke Castle to him, Poyer refused, unless Parliament paid what they owed him and his men. And he got the same response. Parliament, strapped for cash, no. But this time, it came with some added spice. An ordinance was passed, which declared that if Poyer did not hand over Pembroke and disband his men, he was to be considered a traitor. Well, that really annoyed Poyer, as it would. Yes, he was disobeying a direct order, but I mean, come on now. This was an own goal from Parliament. The money could have been found. Instead, Poyer found support from Royalist agents. His sympathies were more with the Presbyterians than the Royalists. His problems were with the Independent Junto and the Grandees. But he decided that if Parliament was going to call him a traitor, he'd find a cause worthy of his allegiance. So Poyer declared for the King, and he rode out of Pembroke and scattered Colonel Fleming's small force. And just like that, the Second English Civil War had begun, in Wales. Poyer's defection spurred others to switch sides. Major General Lawhern soon followed, as did Colonel Rhys Powell. Fairfax dispatched Colonel Horton at the head of a cavalry force to suppress this mutiny, but Poyer defeated the vanguard sent ahead, and then rode through South Wales on a recruitment campaign. Throughout April, Poyer appealed to the people to rally to their beloved Book of Common Prayer and to their imprisoned king. Together, they could free him from captivity and bring him to London to make peace with Parliament. This strongly royalist appeal went down very well in the strongly royalist South Wales, and Poyer would soon recruit a substantial force from the Welsh. Again, an own goal from Parliament. In Ireland, the third Stuart kingdom started to throw its lot in with the king. Just like with Poyer, it's an estranged parliamentarian commander, angry and resentful of the independent junto, who defected first. I'm speaking, of course, about Lord Inchiquin, Lord President of Munster, who had grown sick and tired of the interference of the independents on the Derby House Committee. He'd won an impressive victory at Knocknanus, and dealt a severe blow to Irish Catholicism with the sack of Cashel. And what had Parliament done to reward him and his men? Nothing. The Derby House Committee instead continued to deprive him of supplies and pay for his men. Worse, on a personal level, Lord Broghill, his insubordinate second-in-command, who was allied with the Independents, continued his campaign to blacken Inchiquin's reputation. Inchiquin, Deprived of political and material support throughout the winter of 1647-48, warned Parliament 
that if they continued to deny him resources, he would have to send men back to England, because he couldn't feed them, let alone pay them. He had to sit on the defensive the whole time, unable to press the advantage which he'd won at Notnanus, and which Jones had won at Dungan's Hill, for lack of manpower. And it was in this position, rejected by the Parliament he had loyally served, that the King's agents reached him. Colonel John Barry, an interesting character who probably deserves a bonus episode, he was a devout Catholic, a firm royalist, and a close confidant of Ormond, who often sent him on secret missions just like this. Anyway, Colonel Barry arrived, and successfully bent Inchiquin's ear. After the treatment Inchiquin had received from the independents at Westminster, this was probably as easy a sell as Barry ever made. On the 3rd of April, Inchiquin assembled his army and informed them that he was going to seek a truce with the Catholic Confederacy along the lines of the cessation, and he would oppose the king's enemies in England. Several of his officers could not contain themselves at this declaration, outraged that Inchiquin would turn against Parliament, support the king, and make peace with the hated Confederacy. They tried to rally the army against its commander to relieve the traitor from command, but Inchiquin was no idiot. He'd known that many of his officers would react poorly to his decision, and he was ready. Those who had outed themselves as mutineers, as well as those he doubted the loyalty of, were quickly arrested and imprisoned by troops loyal to him. New officers were appointed in their place, and Inchiquin's command of the Munster army was secured in a bloodless afternoon. The imprisoned officers would be helpful hostages against Parliament, who already had his son and heir imprisoned, just another reason Inchiquin disliked Westminster. With his position secure, Inchiquin started negotiations in earnest with the Supreme Council at Kilkenny. On the last days of April, in the borders, the first steps of the Scottish invasion began. Notably, not by the Scots themselves. Instead, Sir Marmaduke Langdale and Sir Philip Musgrave kicked things off early, and earlier than Hamilton and the engagers might have liked. The English royalists clearly saw an opportunity, because they quickly secured key fortresses on the border. Langdale captured Berwick with only a hundred men. That's not a hundred men casualties, that's just a hundred men. Now, if he thought that was a bargain, Musgrave went one better. He captured Carlisle Castle with just sixteen men. And like that, the road south was open to the Scots. They could travel down the east road, but they could also march down the west through the hills and lakes and forests of Cumbria. One was a much easier path, but, you know, it's good to have options. Now they just had to sit and wait for the engagers to arrive. Any second now. They'll be right along. Any second. Where the hell were they? And not that they were complaining, but where was the rest of the new model army? They were holding the gates to England wide open for a foreign invasion, which could hurry up a bit, if you please. Surely Fairfax and Cromwell should be racing north to take Carlisle and Berwick back. Next time, we'll see what's keeping both armies. Thank you to my House of Lords, the King's favourite, Mike Sanders, the Duke of Ormond, Brendan Bonner, the Marquess of Ludlow, Nick Robinson, and the Earl Talbot, Tom Cozens. Remember that you can join the mailing list to be notified about new episodes and news about the show by going to the link in the description. Thank you to Sounds Like an Earful for the interval music in today's episode, to my entire House of Lords, and to you for listening.
You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply. What did it take to survive an ancient siege? Why was the cult of Dionysus behind so many slave revolts in ancient Rome? What's the tragic history and mythology behind Japan's most haunted ancient forest? We're Jen... And Jenny. From Ancient History Fangirl. Join us to explore ancient history and mythology from a fun, sometimes tipsy perspective. Find us at ancienthistoryfangirl.com or wherever you get your podcasts.